0: Again, hello, everyone. My name is Mike, and uh, I'm excited that you're here with us today, whether you're online or whether you're here physically with us. I'm just uh, glad you're joining this conversation for the next hour or so. And uh, <clears throat> we're in the second week of a series that we've called Are You Kidding Me? Right? And we've all, every single person in this room has had that moment where you're like, are you kidding me? Right? <laughs> we've all had that. But we want to talk about it in light of modern thought and the intersection of culture modern thought, cultural modern thought, and the modern thought of the Christian church. And we are looking at a growing divide between those two arenas of thought. And uh, and this kind of works in two directions. So you have one direction where the world, those outside the church, are looking in at the church, and they're kind of seeing the way the church is impacting the culture that we exist in. And Culture isn't looking at the church, statistically speaking, this is a fact, that culture is no longer looking at the church and saying, you are the answer. They're not even saying you are an answer. They're actually saying you are the problem. And they're saying, are you kidding me? But the second half is the church is looking back at the world and seeing things that are becoming normalized and things that are just, everyone's accepting, and they're going, what, are you kidding me? And we have a communication gap because we're thinking differently and communicating differently. Let me, let me just, let me ask you to be vulnerable here for a minute, a little interactive moment. I got a couple of these planned today, so I'm sure you're on the edge of your seat. Uh, <laughs> a, couple, a couple interactive moments here. So let me ask you to be vulnerable and actually raise your hand in answer to this question. Have you ever been, uh, maybe you're in a conversation with a friend or uh, a neighbor maybe, uh, talking to your kids or you're, you're talking to your parents if you're sitting over there. Um, maybe you've overheard this conversation in a coffee shop. Someone speaking with all the genuine intent as they can and all you can think in your head, raise your hand if you go on. are you kidding me? <laughs> right, well, let me ask you, church, let me ask you another question. I want you to respond again. Have you ever heard of something that's taken place under the banner of Christianity? And you've looked at it and you said, hold on one second. There is no way that's what the Bible is talking about. There's no way that's what Jesus meant or God. No way. Are you kidding me? Have you ever had that moment? Dave Nelson just raised his hand. (laughs) Of course we have. And today, what I want to do is take our time together to explore this huge divide in our thinking. And I'm talking about the world of relativism. (laughs) Okay, we're going to go light and fluffy today. And relativism versus absolutism. And these two worlds, here's a clever little joke, these two worlds are absolutely opposed to each other, relatively speaking. Come on, that was, was better than that. Wasn't it a little bit better than that? No? I'd I'd try my best. Anyway, they're opposed to each other. They stand in opposition to each other. And what I want to talk about is how this difference also may be a tremendous opportunity for us to engage in conversations with people who think differently than we do. We may actually be able to learn from them, realize some things that we don't have straight, all the while being able to have an opportunity to share with them what we believe. And we just finished a series on talking about sharing our faith. And this, I believe, is one of the keys to being able to share our faith with those around us. And so let's start by talking about what is relativism. And before we jump into the heavy stuff, let's just have a little more fun. This is another one of those interactive moments. I want to show you a couple images. And again, I just want you to shout out, you've probably all seen these. Nothing new, but I just want you to shout out what's the first thing you see when you look at this image. Oh, wait, wait, duck or rabbit, which one? Oh, both, okay. Let's look at this next image. What do you see? Old people, anything else? Guitar guy, woman in a cave. I don't know why she's in a cave. Let's look at the next one. How many legs? Four, five, six, seven, right. And I have one, one more for you. Is this woman young or old? This is a classic. Right. So I'm demonstrating very clearly. We don't all agree on what we're seeing on the screens. And it could be the, pers- maybe it's where you're sitting. The lights are hitting you. Maybe you've seen these before. But let me ask you something. After you saw the very first thing that you saw, like, let's look at that duck or the rabbit thing, did anyone, again, be honest, did anyone go, I don't see the rabbit or I don't see the duck? Anyone have that struggle? (laughs) A few of us here. And you know what would be the best way to be able to see the thing you can't see? Ask someone who sees it differently than you. And we're going to be talking about that today. Let me just tell you that (laughs) Susie and I have an armoire cabinet in our front room, Uh, We have little knickknacks in it, so when people walk in, one of the first things they see are some things that are important to us. Now, I refer to it as the green cabinet. She refers to it as the blue cabinet. What I will tell you is that it does not look like a can of Pepsi, and it does not look like Kermit the Frog. So, we could argue to determine which one of us is right. It would be pointless because I am, first of all. Secondly... (laughs) But secondly, and maybe more fundamentally, we need to answer this question. Where did the idea of right and wrong come from? We could argue all day to determine which one of us has it right, but we cannot ever determine, well, let me say it this way, but we will still be left trying to determine why do we have an idea that something is right or wrong? And this, in fact, is the beginning of relativism. The idea that we believe there is a right and wrong. Now, the first step in relativism would be descriptive relativism, which is just that. It's just this like empirical awareness that there does exist fierce disagreement, right, in when it comes to morality. Some people think, so for instance, someone could say, X is right. Someone else says, X is wrong. Well, that's a bit of a challenge. That's what empirical or what descriptive relativism says. And it can change according to descriptive relativism over time. Maybe we've adapted to new things over the, over the course of life. The next step in this process, though, is cultural relativism. And this is pretty interesting. And this just tells us that all morality is defined by the culture. So every culture defines its own morality. Let me give you some examples of this. In most cultures, most cultures, not all. Monogamy is the correct relational process. But in some cultures, and polygamy is considered wrong, but in some cultures, polygamy is not only considered right, it is considered preferred and a way to achieve higher levels of heaven. That is a culturally relativistic interpretation of that. Two views that don't stand together. Some cultures think contraception, is sinful. Other cultures think that it's pretty responsible. Now, over time, we've seen slavery used to be acceptable or human trafficking. In current time, we don't think that anymore in most cultures. So that's cultural relativism, relativism, which leads ultimately to the final destination of relativism, which is meta-ethical relativism. And it's really simple Truth and morality, existing culture, historical context, there's nothing absolute, which means we all get to make up whatever we think is true or false or moral or immoral or right or wrong. That's the ultimate end. Now, what I wanna do, I don't wanna be super dismissive because I spend some time thinking about this. And I I, I looked at this, why do people, I don't know where, you know, in, in this audience, we probably have people in different camps around this. Some some may be more relativistic, some may be more absolute, but there are some some explanations that a relativist would give. So first, this would explain if truth is relative and everyone gets to make up their own description of what's right, what's wrong, what's moral, immoral, what's better, is it blue or green, right? If we all get to do that, then this would explain why disagreements exist, right? Right? If we all make up our own. So that kind of helps us. There's, there's no universal code. Therefore, whatever we decide is right. That's the first step. But then secondly, if there's really, you know, if, if there really was a moral absolute, relativists would say, then we've been around for, well, we don't know, many years. But by now, we would have all found the absolute truth and we would have come to agreement on it. Seems to make sense, doesn't it? The third would be that it explains cultural diversity. Why are cultures different? Well, cultures are different because they have different moral codes. So in one culture, I can live this way. And in one culture, I can live this way. And there's no right and wrong. It's just different. And then finally, this would probably be the best ethical basis for cultural tolerance if we were to look at other cultures and be able to, you know, get rid of, escape, escape the outlook of needing to see cultures as right and wrong, better, worse, then we could just look at other cultures and appreciate the difference and say it's okay, however they live. But I want to share with you, you're probably going to realize that I believe there is an absolute truth. I want to share with you some problems with these arguments. And I want to talk about some absolute truths that I believe, then I wanna talk about how we can share our faith around that. The first thing I want us to understand is that presuming or presupposing that moral absolutes require that we are all aware of them and that we all agree is a mistake. And here's why I think that is. There are many truths in this world that we have yet to discover. Scientists, as a matter of fact, disagree on the origins of humanity. Does that mean that there is no definite origin of humanity? Of course not. There is an origin of humanity. We just haven't discovered it yet. Or some would say they haven't discovered it yet, depending on which side you're on. Secondly, moral disagreements between cultures do not prove the absence of a universal truth any more than agreement with moral absolutes, <laughs> proves that it is, in fact, a thing, right? It, it, let me say it this way. If you're using disagreement around morality as a justification for no moral truth or no, you know, rel- or no absolute truth, then I could say, well, actually, there's more, generally more agreed upon moral truth or absolute truth than disagreed upon. In most cultures, cold-blooded murder torture for fun. Lying, stealing are considered bad. So if we're going to use the agreement argument, then I could say, since there's more agreement, it probably is absolute. But then the third thing, this is kind of interesting. If, if, if the world is relativistic and we can all decide our own truth, then there would be no reason, when you think of pre-modern practices that were accepted as moral, slavery, for instance, there would be no reason for them to be immoral today. They're either moral or they're not moral or we all decide for ourselves. It doesn't change over time, which leads us to the next step. If each culture is responsible to make up its own relative truth or morality, then why is there almost virtually no culture that is completely homogenous in its beliefs. So once again, we have a problem of agreement, which reduces relativism to individual choice. And that's all that's left is everyone gets to make a choice for themselves. And it's impossible because we have different thoughts back to the blue cabinet or the green cabinet. Are you kidding me? And let me go a step further because this is, you know, as something is harmless, like we talk about like little white lies, for instance, you can kind of justify how you can get away with that. It's not really a big deal. But when the issues increase in severity and significance, this becomes a very large problem. If you're a Netflix watcher, maybe you've noticed, I think there are at least two documentaries out right now by Jeffrey Dahmer. Well, generally speaking, the world thinks he did some bad stuff. But here's the question I would ask. If truth is relative and made up individually, what right does anyone have to judge what he did? Oh, I know what you're gonna say. You're gonna say, well, that's because he imposed his will on someone else's. But why can't he do that? That's what he decided was true. Brings you to the next question. Well, as long as it's two consenting adults, right? Maybe you've heard this. As long as two adults agree and consent on something, then it's okay. But the idea of consent infers a moral obligation to consider the other person's rights. And if I make up my own truth, why do I have to consider anyone else's rights? I don't, which is a problem. I'm not harming anyone else. Well, the fact that I'm harming or not harming, what is harm even? There's no way to quantify this because I just make it up on my own again. This leaves us where we began, that while we don't necessarily all agree on what's right and wrong, we do all agree that there is a right and there is a wrong. Every person in this room has gotten an answer wrong on a test, objectively. Sometimes you've done the right thing. Sometimes you've been wronged by others, right? Have you ever felt someone has done something wrong to you? Yes or no, right? This speaks to the internal nature that we have that testifies to a truth because I feel offended by your action. Saint Benedictine the 16th said this quote. I think this is really brilliant. He said, We're moving toward a dictatorship of relativism, which does not recognize anything as for certain, and which has as its highest goal one's own ego and one's own desires. Ultimately, what he's saying, and I agree, is that relativism allows us to be the king of our own world with no consequences and the king of your world, too, while I'm at it. Maybe another way to say it would be this. A son and a dad were having a conversation, and the son said to the dad, he said, hey, dad, um, you, you said that we all decide morality for ourselves, but if that's true, if we all decide morality for ourselves, if that's true, and you say something is right, and I think it's wrong, does that make you immoral? The dad says, no, son, Makes you immoral. (laughs) Think, just think about that for a second. And ultimately, what it does is maybe it doesn't just make dad or son right or immoral or wrong or moral. It makes the whole world right or immoral, right? Because we're all making our own decisions. So, if moral relativism is an implausible reality that leaves us with only one option which is moral absolutism. There are truths that can be known. And absolutism is exactly that. It's the belief that there, in fact, are universal truths. And since there's an absolute truth, it must live outside of us, not come from within us. We must go to it. It doesn't become created from us. Uh, Let me say it this way. Truth is not defined by me, it's defined for me. Or uh, I abide by truth. It doesn't abide by my definition of it. Let me give you an example of that. So uh, I could redefine gravity to say it is the force that pulls me off into space. If I define gravity that way, will I immediately begin to float away? No. I've just changed the definition to make it whatever I want it to be. That doesn't change the reality of what it is. Or I could make one plus one equal three by changing the definition of one of the functions. We've all, we all know what one is, but if I change the value of what one is, because I want to, I can make it one and a half. Now, one plus one equals three. Or if I make equals a, a, a greater than or a less than sign, I can change definitions. But here's what's interesting. If I do that, you know what I've just done? I've created a new absolute. In order for me to make that true, I absolutely have to change a function, which leads me back to the fact that there's absolute truth. Well, Mike, you say, we're at church. Are you going to talk about the Bible at all? Yes, (laughs) right now. Okay, right now. (laughs) Got a little carried away, but I am going to talk about it. And the Bible would say this way in Proverbs 16, there is a way which seems right to a person, but it's end is the way of death. There are things that we think are right that don't lead to life. And just as Benedictine was saying, we we want to be relativistic and we wanna make our own decisions. We don't wanna abide by anyone else's rules. I wanna make my own rules because that's gonna lead to the life I desire. The Bible says completely the opposite, that the life you want exists in your submission to the absolute truth. As a matter of fact, in, in the book of Judges, it's a really interesting section from chapter 17 to tw- chapter 21, where is, there's a recurring phrase and, uh, and uh, this recurring theme that keeps happening. And it's repeated multiple times. And it, and it says this, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now understand this, in ancient Israel, the king was not only the governmental and political leader, the king was also the spiritual and moral leader of Israel. And in the absence of a spiritual, moral leader, people began doing whatever they wanted. And that was, as you read Kings and Chronicles, you see this, even when there were kings in place who didn't follow the absolute law of God, Israel went into folly every single time. So, What happens in this time, and it's surrounded by these these somewhat crazy stories of these guys doing all kinds of stuff, just making up their own ways. Oh, I'm gonna be a Levite. I'm gonna be this, I'm gonna be that, I'm gonna do this. It's, It's pretty fascinating, but every single time there's no king, people did what was right, and you see the folly that ensues. And here's what I wanna share with you, that one of the main complaints lodged against the Christian faith, you know what it is? Yes, well, there are a lot actually. (laughs) So I'll just tell you: (laughs) is that it's so exclusive, and it makes such absolute claims. How can that be a good thing? You know, in Acts, the church is called the way, not a way. The way. (laughs) Well, that's a little exclusive, isn't it? Now, you 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 remember when Moses went to? Uh, the people of Israel, and he said, hey, God, who am I supposed to tell him is sending me? What did God say? Tell him, I am is sending you. What is it, I am? I am means the self-sufficient, self-existent, self-perpetuating, eternal, omnipresent, omniscient creature. <laughs> oh, oh, he's sending me. I don't know if you could get any more exclusive than that, to be honest with you. In John, First John, we're told that God loves us. He has love for us, and he's loving. But that's not where it ends. We're told that God is, in fact, love. And if we want to know what love is, you know what you need to do? Understand who God is, and you will understand love. Jesus took it from there. He picked it up in the, in the Gospels. He, what did he say? I am the way. I'm not a way. I'm the way. I am the way. Your truth. No, no, I am my truth. No, 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 I am a truth. No, 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 I am the truth. I am, in fact, he says, the only way to get to God. That is about as empirical and exclusive as you can be. And we think that if we make our own truths, that we can have the best life that we desire. And God's word would tell us that's exactly the wrong way to do it. Your best hope at having the life you were created to live is through alignment to the universal truth and moral authority. Now, I believe there is an absolute truth, but I wanna caution us about three things just as we're closing out. And I'll go quickly, I promise there are three cautions I wanna give us around absolutism, okay? The first caution is this. Absolutism kind of fails when it becomes dogma. Now, let me give you Webster's definition of dogma. If you don't agree with me, you're a moron. (laughs) Okay, that wasn't really Webster. But anyway, when you... Create an absolute truth that becomes a billy club for you to beat other people into submission with your idea. Absolute truth fails. Because who is God again? Love. Oh. And this happens all the time, right? You guys, you guys look at social media, you see this, right? Someone makes a post, half the people go, You're the best, and half the people go, you're the devil. Second is this, though. Absolutism becomes a failure when everything becomes an absolute. Pepsi is absolutely better than Coke. <laughs> 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 Period. All right, next point. <laughs> There's only one way to do this math problem. The Bible said it. There's no discussion. Oh, wait, hold on. Whoa, whoa but oh, we're treading thin there, like, Okay, let me just tell you something that's very important for us to realize. When you are talking about the Bible and there are absolutes in the Bible, be sure you are presenting the, what the Bible says, not your interpretation of what the Bible says. And when those interpretations become absolutes, that becomes a problem because we're speaking a language that's untrue sometimes. Views on cultural topics, here's one. Who to vote for? Not absolute truths. All of these things may be based in absolute truths, but they are not, in fact, absolute truths themselves, and we cannot allow everything to become an absolute truth if it's not. And the third one, and this is really important, third one is this. Absolute truth is a problem when we stop listening. Now, well, Susie, she's, really, she's a lot smarter than me, and she said this to me in the kitchen uh, this afternoon. Um, she said, you know what's interesting? People are so scared of being wrong that they would rather continue in their own ignorance than have someone point out the fact that they're wrong. The whole world knows you're wrong, but you'd rather just not know it. Oh, <laughs> Let me show you a verse in James chapter 1, verse 19 and verse 26. I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to talk about it just really quickly as we close. Understand this, it says, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. What's righteousness? Rightness. Human anger doesn't make you right. If you claim to be religious but you don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself and your religion is really super valuable to those around you. It's worthless. It's not even compromised, it becomes useless if we can't control our tongues. What does it mean to control your tongue? Stop talking. Are you listening to someone while you're talking? My kids would say that that they are, but I don't think they are actually. And I don't think I am either. And I don't think you are. Control your tongue. And it says this, what's the first thing you do? Be quick to listen. You wanna know something? Jesus, who we just said, is arguably one of the most exclusive, absolute truth-delivering people to ever, probably the most absolute truth-delivering person to ever walk the earth. And people who were not like him liked him. Do you know what that means? That the problem is not absolute truth. It's the way we're delivering absolute truth. And when we stop listening, we close our minds out. When we have those moments where we're like, are you kidding me? Now I'm going to talk because I've just declared in my own mind, I don't understand you. Wait, hold on. Maybe there's a different way. And in the moment when you don't understand, according to this verse, your first step to take is to seek more clarity and be open to the fact that maybe this person who thinks differently than me has something valuable to share in this conversation. And if I could put down my club put on my hearing aids, maybe I can grow. And maybe I can have an opportunity to share because they feel heard and now they want to listen. I just want to say this. And band, you guys can come on forward. We're going to transition into some musical worship here. The very second you hear yourself saying, are you kidding me? You've just exposed that the one who doesn't understand is you, not them. And it is, according to this scripture, it is on you to take the next step to seek understanding. It says there's a time to talk, but not until you understand. And so if you're talking before you understand, probably the only thing you should be doing is asking questions. And here's what I want you to know that some of us have the best intentions. I want this person to come to Christ so badly. I need him to hear what I have to say. But let me just give you a heads up. You are not the Holy Spirit. And as we just talked about in the last series, it is not your obligation, responsibility, or even ability to make someone a Christian. It is your responsibility to share your faith. What they do with it is up to them completely. And let me ask you something. You could be right, but does that guarantee that if someone doesn't listen to me or listens to me is gonna find Christ or not find Christ? No, because I'm not the Holy Spirit. And you can be right and you can write yourself right out of relationship. And the moment you do that, you lose the right to share the absolute truth that you believe. So here's what I wanna do. I just wanna, We you close your eyes and I wanna pray together as we transition here. And I just wanna first give you a second to reflect about absolute truth and relationships you have and people you care for and those that you want to know Jesus so badly or maybe you're in this place where you're like I'm not sure I don't know I'm kind of still pondering what you're saying Mike I want you to think Do you really believe that Jesus, without your help, without your billy club of truth, can help someone find Christ? And I'm gonna be really honest with you. I don't know if I always believe that. And in that moment, oftentimes I write myself right out of relationship. I lose the voice of a friend who maybe, just maybe, needed Jesus just like everyone else does. So I want you to think, is there someone that God's laying on your heart you want to pray for, you need to hear from, someone who's different than you that you can share the truth with? Lord Jesus, I just ask that you would lead us and guide us. Make us aware of your truth. Where we're not being loved or loving we're not leading with as you say in James a, a quick to listen ear but we're determined to win an argument or convert someone or force someone to believe forgive us help us you are absolute you are self-sufficient let us trust in you and you alone Ask all of this in your name. Amen.